Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Achtung, achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, Al Murray, James Holland and John McManus and uh, John, you've decided that what we're going to do is gnaw on an enormous bone today like one of the biggest bones possible, (laughs) right? The ultimate, like, enormous bone, Guadalcanal which is like... The epic so air land sea battle of World yeah. War II, at least on some levels. It's well, just unreal. Weirdly coincident with uh, Stalingrad that we were talking about, James and I were talking about, and you joined us to talk about Lend-Lease and Stalingrad. Weirdly coincident with that event, really, isn't it? I mean, it's a peculiar how they, they sort of sit across each other, don't they? Yeah, yeah. and have something of the same effect on their respective yeah. theatres. Yeah. Uh, because after Guadalcanal, certainly the Japanese are on the defensive. They, I mean, they were still on the offensive after Midway. I think there's a tendency, mm-hmm. because Midway is such a, a big victory for the U.S. Navy, to think, okay, well, that's the turnaround. Now Japan's going to lose the war. Yeah. And I, I've really yeah. pushed back over that uh, against that over the years. Yeah, um, They're still on the offensive in, in, in spots. And, there, of course, there's a lot of ways they can still win the war. Um, yeah. But Guadalcanal... Uh, is certainly one of these backbreaker battles they get sort of drawn into, almost similar to the way the Germans are drawn into Stalingrad by their own kind of dysfunction. Uh, but, you know, the worthiness of the objective on some levels, too. Yeah. Um, and it, But it just doesn't redound to their advantage. Right. Well, set, set the scene for us, John. Um, yeah, those, and, and we should those, explain, cause for those who weren't listening last week, we should explain where Guadalcanal is. <laughs> yes. It's like the, the southern tip of the Solomons, which is, what were we saying last week? I mean, well, it's, it's off the northeast of, coast of Australia. You, you, yeah. To get there, you have yeah. to fly to Brisbane, and then you, then, and then you fly from Brisbane to Hanara, and it's, and it's I mean... So like a five I'm lucky hour. enough to have been there, and it's absolutely amazing. It's like a five-hour flight. No, it wasn't. As, it's more like three, I think, two, two three. and a half, three, yeah. something like that. It's, it's, it feels like a long way. And the amazing thing is, is because you you fly from so, so all these islands, they're they're basically volcanic. They're, so they're they're mountainous and 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 hilly, and they've got that kind of sort of volcanic kind of soil, very clayey, very kind of rich, dark, peaty kind of color. And they're just covered in forest. 
um, and grasses and, and trees and eucalyptus trees and, and what have you. And it, and it's exactly as you imagine it's going to look all sort of jungly and sort of big leaves and palms and what have you. And, and I remember when I kind of flew in there the first time, there it was, you know, sort of little kind of shimmies of, of clouds sort of nestling in the hills and the, and the kind of the gorges and stuff. It's, you know, it was, it just felt tropical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course you get off there and, and, um, I think I was there in kind of March, it was sort of March time. And it's bastard hot. I mean, but but it's not it's not hot. It's sticky. And, and I mean, you won't know what we mean by it ain't half hot, Mum John. But 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 you know, <laughs> in that they always had in in their, this was a kind of a, like a, a sitcom set in a in a concert party in Burma and or northeast India or whatever. And and they all had the, the these sort of bush shirts, and they all had huge dark patches under the armpits and on the back <laughs> and on the front. And it was just like that. I mean, you literally you're just sweating buckets within two minutes. So it's it's incredibly hot and fetid and and uh, incredible. But of course, the, the main thing is is that it's only on that coastal strip that anything's happening. But Absolutely. that's the key to it, isn't it? Most of it is just jungle that no one even messes with. So the the no. whole. I mean, no one cared about this place except that the Japanese had decided they were going to build an airfield there. Um, you know, yep. sort of a mid-level airfield, that, that, but nonetheless could house, what, about 50 medium bombers, about 50 or 60 fighters. The significance of that, of course, is that with that airfield, they could interdict shipping coming between the U.S. and yeah. Australia and New yeah. Zealand. And that yeah, just right. couldn't happen. The Allies could not allow that. So, you know, you, you have a little bit of more of an even quotient in terms of the, uh, the naval hardware after Midway. And now you've got some level of momentum by what we would call the late summer in the Northern Hemisphere. It's the late winter there. You'd never know that it's a winter, like Jim said, in terms of the heat. Um, But you basically have to launch this counteroffensive to eliminate that airfield and make it your own. And so that's what the whole battle is about. Who's going to control that airfield and thus project air power and probably about a thousand miles in every direction around. Um, but the other thing that I like to point out that I, that I think I think is definitely overlooked in, in this country um, is that Guadalcanal is really part of also the New Guinea story, too, um, right. especially right. from a Japanese perspective, that that's yep. really why they lose, because they're bogged down fighting on Guadalcanal, even as they're fighting this kind of existential battle at Buna, Gona, San Ananda, and Papua New Guinea, and they're dispersing right. resources. And both sides, are, of course, are stretched thin, but yeah. it's the Allies who can better afford that than you know than can the Japanese. A battle has to be fought, essentially. Even though, even though, like you say, this is a godforsaken place that no one in their right mind, apart from James Holland, would ever visit. So, <laughs> so, you're, so, uh, so, so, what did what did the Americans? Did the Americans? Because uh, we described it compared to Stalingrad earlier. Did it, did 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 the Americans? Uh, 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 adopt a piecemeal approach to uh, Guadalcanal. The Japanese certainly do, as, you've in, as you intimated earlier. Both do so by necessity, do. in a way, because right. that's what they have at any given time. And I, I don't know that either of them quite understand what they're getting into, right. especially on the Japanese side. Yeah. Um, once the, the Americans basically decide, we cannot let them develop this airfield. We've just got to go in and take it. Um, and we've got available for that maybe about two-thirds of the 1st Marine Division, uh, which had been deployed in theater, you know, prior to this and was obviously yeah. amphibious capable. Now, why yeah. two thirds? That's about all the shipping that we've got. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and how much we can supply and support them and, and all that other good stuff. So, you know, they go in on Guadalcanal unopposed, though. Also, I think this is, tends to be overlooked, too, on some of the, the smaller outlying islands. You're going to have some pretty ferocious fighting because that's where. Yeah, some of the like Tulagi. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's where the Japanese combat forces so, were deployed at that point. So, so yeah. John, how many? How large is two thirds? How many people are we talking about? Two thirds of a, oh, about twelve thousand Marines, right. roughly, give or take. Okay. Um, because you have two regiments of the First Marine Division that are going to go in. Uh, plus engineers. Um, you've got elements of the second Marines, second Marine regiment uh, that's going to fight, you know, Tulagi and, and some of the other outlying places. Um, the seventh Marine regiment, which is the last of the three regiments of the first Marine division is going to come in later, you know, as shipping is available, as training is, you know, is completed, all of this stuff. Yeah. So both, so it's a piecemeal battle uh, in which both sides are feeding in forces as the momentum grows from August uh, August 7th forward. So August 7th is the day of the invasion, 1942. Yeah. Um, the Japanese, this is the, I mean. Well, they've been there since May, haven't they? They get to Tulagi in the beginning of May, don't they? If they I have, but they, they've mainly had um, impressed sla- enslaved Korean laborers there building these airfields for them and also Japanese construction specialists, not too many combat forces. This is also mind-blowing. Um, one of my, my colleagues in Japan recently, um, uh, Hiroyuki Shindo, told me that, and, and he, he studies the um, uh, Imperial Japanese Army High Command. And he told me that, you know, from, from their perspective, for about the first year to a year and a half of the war, the Army's priority is really not at all on the war against the Western Allies. Um, that they figure that's the Navy's war to deal with out there in the, in the wilds of the Pacific. We're focused wow. on China and Burma and India because um, that's the Army's war that it had wanted, that yeah. continental war. Yeah, uh, and so you don't have a lot of army ground forces available from a Japanese perspective at that point in the war. They're going to have to do this by necessity, saying, "Oh my gosh, this is a threat." Because I think we also tend to forget what's often called erroneously Japanese Marines in this war. They're actually special naval landing forces. The Jap- the Navy has its own ground forces on the Japanese right. side. <laughs> um, and so I, I guess the army hierarchy figured, all right, they can deal with whatever the Australians, the Americans, whoever else present us on those little islands. And we'll worry about Asia. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so the Japanese army is having to kind of work on the fly as Guadalcanal unfolds, sending battalions and regiments in their sort of piecemeal. So that's why when, I mean, you know, Robert Leckie, for instance, lands on the 7th of August, 1942, there's no fight. I mean, he, he describes, he describes, you know, his heart in his mouth, the whole thing, the preparatory bombardment, the, the entire thing. And then the assault goes in and there's no fight. The Japanese, had, you know, he says the Japanese had run. We laid there, found out in battle array, but there was no one to oppose us. Is that is yeah. that because the Japanese just don't have the people? They don't have the, they don't have the combat troops there. Right. It's mainly laborers there. Korean right. guys from Korea who really don't want to be there. Yeah. Who are basically enslaved and building this airfield. And then you've got civilian construction specialists on the, the Japanese side. They're not fighters. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, the whole thing from a Marine perspective, the invasion is anticlimactic. Yeah, because it's like we figured we were really going to be in this fight and now there's nothing. But but there's a little bit of a pattern there because you see that at other places in the Pacific where the initial landing isn't too tough. It's the reaction that you're going to get later on. Well, yeah. And the big reaction comes at sea initially, isn't it? Yeah. The the Battle of Savo Island. Yeah. Which which happens happens literally the next day. Yeah. The next day. And And all the Marines are watching this because Savo Island, you absolutely can see from that north. They were on the north shore of of Guadalcanal and, and you can absolutely see across the sea and you can see salvo island is this sort of classic kind of pacific round island with a sort of slightly kind of 
hilly interior and it just looks like the perfect rounded Pacific, you know, desert island, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. And so here comes a Japanese surface fleet, cruiser heavy, coming in there, yeah. this night engagement with an allied fleet that's just absolutely clobbered that night. We lose, what, four cruisers, I think three U.S. and one Australian. Yeah. Um, you know, well over a thousand sailors lose their lives that night. It's a catastrophe for the Allies. The Quincy yeah. and the Astoria, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it's a catastrophe. But the, the, the lucky thing for the Allies is that Admiral Mikawa, uh, the Japanese commander doesn't follow that up by going in and hitting uh, the actual beachhead where you have a very vulnerable, you know, uh, supply ships and, and uh, landing craft and all that. I mean, you could have torn them apart, but he's got fuel issues. There's the confusion of war. Um, who knows what else is out there for the allies in terms of surface assets uh, or carriers too. once it gets light. I mean, you could be vulnerable there in those fairly narrow waters. So, the decision is at least understandable on that level, but it's kind of disastrous because he, he probably could have gone a long way to to wrecking that beachhead and leaving the Marines in a terrible spot. And how did how did how did the Japanese how did he get the jump on the the, uh, the U.S. fleet? He's got better range on his uh, right. torpedoes. I mean, it, it, the he's the Japanese uh, ships had better torpedoes at that point in the war, right. um, and they're just absolutely. Yeah, they, they well, the, 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 the torpedo problems that the, um, the the U.S. Navy submarines have is exactly the same problem. You know, that's a universal problem across the U.S. Navy, isn't it? Yeah, the Mark 14 was just not up to snuff at this point in time. Right. Um, so you have this really, really terrible situation in which American submarines are getting to their targets and they're firing those torpedoes, but they're not exploding. Right. Um and, you know, that you can imagine what that does to crew morale. Yeah, uh, it's almost a scandal because it takes the Navy almost about a year to sort this out, because what happened is the ordnance people were saying, well, no, you sub captains are not doing this right. Um, you're not really wanting to, to go in and fight the right way and to have the right, right. target acquisition right. and and, uh, and permutate calculations and all that. And yeah. the operational people are saying, hey, you know, we're there. We're, we're in position. We'll show you. You know, these the, something something is wrong with these torpedoes, yeah. and uh, so there's a kind of bureaucratic reluctance to take on this problem until you know about the middle of 1943 is when it's Gosh. finally sorted right. out. Uh, uh, yeah. um, so that's the first two days. <laughs> we, yeah. We've covered well, we've covered. but but you imagine <laughs> that the problem is is that the Marines have just been landed there and they they can see this battle going. Yeah. And then the next thing they know, they can hear it overnight because it's a night action. So they can see guns going and flashes. You can hear the booms and all the rest of it. And then, and, and they're all kind of sort of thinking, okay, what's going on? Then it all quietens down. The next morning, they're gone. Yeah. So, so they're yeah. sat on their asses on this island in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And they're thinking, hang on a minute. Where, where are our support vessels? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, within a matter of a couple of days, uh, um, Vandergift is having to say, rations cut, boys. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they've captured Japanese food, so they're they're using some of that. They're limiting uh you to maybe two sea rations a day at most. Right. You're not right. starving, but you're hungry. By now you've got malaria and yellow fever problems already because you you're not adequately prepared uh you know on yeah. the the sort of medical side for this this whole thing in the South Pacific. Um yeah, so the the supply becomes kind of a shoestring operation. Admiral Fletcher is really concerned about the safety of his ships in those narrow waters, especially post-Savo. Um, you got to remember, too, that, you know, the, the U.S. Pacific Fleet 
really only has two operational fleet carriers to call on at any given time, you know, so you have to be careful with those assets. If you lose them, you're in a tough spot. Um, And so it it contributes to this idea that that the Navy has completely abandoned the Marine Corps there, which isn't quite correct. The Marines like to remember (laughs) it that way. Um, (laughs) The Navy is doing the best it can on this kind of quick dash shoestring resupply operation mm. while still preserving the capital ship assets. Um, yeah. And so the Marines are getting by. It's just not pleasant. Be there on this hot box <laughs> wondering what's going to happen. Next. And they're also, they also, they, but, but also they don't have sufficient intelligence do they? Cause they don't, they don't quite know what Japanese forces are on the Island and, and what, what they can sort of, you know, maybe they can improve their situation themselves and well, neither stuff. And, they, and, and they send off this patrol, don't they? Oh, the Getki patrol. Yeah. Yeah. The horrible thing because they had, to, this is uh, the guy who was the Intel officer of the first Marine division. Uh, so that's a patrol of what? 25, 30 guys, something like that. And they, they become convinced for what reason I've never been quite clear on what, that they think uh, a Japanese force wants to surrender or is vulnerable to that. And they, they go and they have another little mini landing far, you know, a little farther away from the beachhead. And actually they're ambushed and they're killed, uh, I think to the last man or, or close to it. Gosh. Um, you know, which also shows you the kind of let's play for keeps, you know, environment you're going to have in the Pacific war. I don't know that that's a Japanese bait and switch. Um, mm. but certainly the Marines perceived it that way. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And, but, but neither side has good Intel especially the Japanese and, and what they do next is the best example. They think they're dealing with just a, a kind of expeditionary landing force of maybe battalion size or something. Right. And in fact, you've got the better part of two thirds of the combat division and you've got engineers there who are hurriedly building that airfield into yep. what will become known as Henderson field. Uh, so the Japanese send in basically the equivalent of about a battalion battalion plus uh, it's often called the Ichiki Detachment. Now, yeah. Rich Frank, um, in, in his book Tower of Skulls, says actually the guy's name was not Ichiki. Um, and I don't recall <laughs> what the actual name So, you know, it's like, oh, great, let's add to the confusion. But, uh, you know, obviously, <laughs> Rich, Rich is right. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's really kind of an interesting find that he had there that to, to realize, because we've all called this the Ichiki Detachment for, for decades. Well, right. But it was sent in there in this night assault in, in like the ultimate fatal funnel. Yeah. And what the, the, the Americans call the Battle of Alligator Creek. And this is a night engagement. If you can imagine yourself with uh, you're, you're, you're fighting in a swamp with a river attached to it and a beach, a narrow beach, and then the sea. And that's your area of maneuver. Yeah, because because you because you, you you go on the beach and there's a there's a sort of river opening onto the beach, and it curves around and it, it so you've got this kind of what looks like a like a sort of sandbar. Yeah. So the river curves around so it's parallel to the, the the sea shore, and then it curves again. So it, so it does like a sort of big f- figure of sort of like snakes around like a like an S, I suppose. And so the Marines are on the southern side, aren't they? Of, the, of yeah. this on this bar. Yeah. And they've set up a perimeter, and the Japanese are coming onto this sandbar, and then and the Marines are dug in behind the other on the other side. So they've got the river protecting them as a, as a sort of defensive barrier, and they're all set, sat there waiting for them, basically. And basically. they come through the through the copra trees, the coconut trees, and from the yep. beach. And it's a massacre. It's a slaughter, isn't it? It is. It's, it's horrible. It, it's horrible. I mean, it's it's you know, but the, but the, this what nine hundred roughly. 917 land, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and nearly eight, nearly 800 of them are killed. I mean, it's uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's one of those one of those battles where I mean, it is interesting that that you know with 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 the uh, 
get get patrol. You get this first. It, the first encounter results in you know a completely uncompromised, no prisons prisoners taken encounter. And you know, often often first encounters can set the tone, can't they? That that's then mm-hmm. how things are going to be from now on. You know, no one took any prisoners. Whether that's what, I mean, whether that's what the Japanese were always going to do anyway, we, I suppose is, is is moot, isn't it? But the but the fact that this major encounter ends in such carnage is um i mean it must it must there must be this thing for the marines where they're going all oh, right okay this is this is a, a far beyond what we've come to what we've been led to expect well and, and the no japanese s- too yeah exactly I mean, exactly but, but, but it's also the japanese just keep coming it's, it's signs of, uh, of a tactic which they they never let up they're still doing it in kind of you know battle of kahima and all the rest yeah. of it later yeah. on mm-hmm. and later on in the war whereas where, where once they've decided this is how they're going to attack, they just keep attacking until they're all dead, basically, or mm. out of the action. You'd have thought that by that stage, you know, a Japanese officer would see what's happening, pull back, think again. But that doesn't happen. They just keep coming through the copra. They just yeah. keep coming off the beach and just keep getting mowed down. The whole unit yeah. fatal funneled into this spot. And these guys yeah. had known each other a long time. They had, they had tremendous bonds. Um, they, they were very good soldiers. But they're they're not ably led in that in that circumstance. But this is a yeah. tendency the Japanese have throughout the whole war. Now you know, and so there's a lot of ways to look at this. In my opinion, um, this kind of thing had worked for them in other places. Uh, I'm sure it had worked in China. Uh, I'm sure yeah. it would work against a an ill led sort of colonial army in in Malaya or something mm. where, where, where you just like, overwhelm with just overwhelm them and, and they're like ah you know I'm not too into this fight let me just get out of here you know but yeah. the Japanese had entered this war they're you know thinking uh, well understanding the Americans uh, and and of course the Western allies as a whole were going to have more industrial production and more material strength and all that mm. uh, but they downplay that on the idea of something called Yamato Damashi which meant, you know, Yamato meant Japan, Damashi meant fighting spirit, that fighting spirit would ultimately win the war. Yeah. But it's the same as the Nazi will, isn't it? The power of the the will. will, Yeah, it is. But in this case, um, you know, I think you play, you see it really play out more tragically in the Pacific theater because German commanders really had more nuance and understanding of offensive tactics and combined, you know, combined arms warfare and all that. than I think did the the Japanese. Um, So here, you know, you might, I mean, the, the Japanese were right in the sense that human will is ultimately what decides wars. That's true. But what happens if you're up against an enemy that has equal fighting spirit and will to win the war, but also yeah. tons of material stuff? Yeah. Uh, and so this is where you see it play out for the first time. The Marine firepower is the example of sort of an American fighting spirit linked up with this this material and firepower strength. Um, that is going to be a devastating weapon. And so for the ground fighting, at least in that first two months or so uh, at Guadalcanal, that's the pattern. The Japanese are going to reinforce. They're going to try again to to overwhelm the perimeter and grab the airfield uh, in much bigger, more coordinated engagements. But the end result is much the same. Yeah. Um, so that's the pattern. And, and around that time, fighter planes come in. Um, U.S. Navy fighter planes come in and, and, and reach Henderson Field, and so, so suddenly there's, there is there is a little bit of. I mean, I think it's only twenty twenty five something like that. But but it's it's a number of kind of um, wildcats, isn't it, that come in and 
yeah. there to protect the island. Yeah, they're called the Cactus Air Force because the code name That's for Guadalcanal was Cactus. Yeah. Yeah. So here's this little air force outnumbered. But, but it's all about now. It's about build up, isn't it? It's, 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 it's literally a case of who can build up the most. Everything quickly. is about who controls that airfield. I mean, it, it really boils down to that, which means that this battle is about the projection of air power. For, for really through most of the Solomons and all those sea lanes that we've talked about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, here's this uh, sort of Navy Marine little Air Force, mainly fighters, that's uh, trying to hang on, uh, you know, in a fight in which they're outnumbered. They're kind of outgunned in the sense that the Japanese probably have better fighter planes at this stage of the war. Right. Um, you know, but they're just kind of providing air cover the best they can. And also, obviously, uh, try and deal with uh, a lot of the Japanese naval hardware that's going to be involved along those waters for these next several months, because this is a major naval battle, too. That's kind of the confusing side of Guadalcanal. All these naval engagements and surface. We have this idea that the Pacific War is the carrier's war and all that. And I mean, that's true on some levels in, in the big, big Titanic battles like Midway and Battle of Philippine Sea or whatever. But really, if we're looking at the micro level, uh, from a naval perspective, I think that uh, it's a surface war in some respects, too, especially in the Solomons uh, and at Guadalcanal, you know, in particular. So who controls those waters? That's what it's about. Well, I was just going to say, John, because you said, you know, the emphasis is on taking the airfield, because after, after all, it's been established that air is now a, a really threatening component in naval warfare. The encounter at... Um, Savo Island is is as surface fleet as it possibly could be, isn't it? Yeah, that, that, that's why they do it at fleet. night. They do it at night to ne- to negate the um, the you know potential of air air, air power or air, an air air response, um, and it, and it and it works extremely well for the Japanese. And that that sh- that leads you back to just because you. I mean, it's this thing in warfare, isn't it? Just because there are new things doesn't mean the old things aren't going to work. Just because there's new ways of doing things and new things to integrate doesn't mean at- attacking at night with torpedoes on a su- on a surface level isn't going to be really really effective. Like you say, that's very much a feature of what's actually what's also going on. And it's it's you've got to draw your eye away from the capital ships, haven't you? Really, and think about the navy as a bigger integrated system rather than a obviously there are carrier battles. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, in this, and with Guadalcanal, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. the U.S. Navy loses Hornet. Um, yep. You know, it use, loses Wasp. I mean, it's yep. it, yeah, this is it's a tough battle from that circumstance. That position. I mean, coming thick and fast after after Alligator Creek is uh, Eastern Solomons, isn't it? The Battle of the Eastern Solomons. All right, mm. which, which is the next naval battle, and that's uh, what what is it? So, twenty first is of August is uh, is is Alligator Creek. This is. 24th of August. So it's literally just after. So yeah. it is an extraordinary campaign because you get these land battles and these engagements and big incidents happening. And then you get the naval battle and then it goes back to the ground again. And it's just, it's just nonstop. It's all the above. And plus the air, the aerial side to it, which is going on every day, uh, yeah. you know, just fighter engagements uh, up above certainly Guadalcanal, but also in the, you know, the, the waters around it. I mean, it's just so that it's, it's really a hard battle to wrap your mind around in that respect. It's all three dimensions, but it's also a battle of reinforcement too. Not just resupply, of course, but reinforcement. Who's going to get their guys to their, you know, in, in the right spot at the right time? And so the Japanese are sending more troops in, again, under the, the structural issues that I've mentioned. So they're having to scrape people up wherever they can uh, throughout the Pacific and get them in a scratch way aboard ships. And what that means for an average Japanese soldier usually is I'm throwing you aboard a destroyer. And so here you are packed aboard a destroyer and we're going to some, somehow get you 
you know, landed somewhere at Guadalcanal. And then we're going to send you through the jungle and you're going to be carrying everything that you, that we possibly have uh, in order to get you in position. And now here unambiguously, we're going to send you forward into a Americans often call a bonsai assault, whether it really is that or not is another matter, but straight on to try and overwhelm that American perimeter. I mean, it's really kind of crazy. We need to take a break right now. We'll see you in a tick. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. So that's what the Japanese are doing to re- to reinforce. What are the Americans doing to reinforce? Because you've got to move by day, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, whether you can get them in there, of course, but also a matter of shipping. And uh, so the 7th Marine Regiment is going to be added to the battle. But this this is the part that is so overlooked in, uh, in the U.S. The Army <laughs> is a huge part of this battle. Um, the first indicator is the 164th Infantry Regiment, 
which is North Dakota National Guard. It's part of the AmeriCal Division. Okay, so here's another kind of allied scratch force that we can send in there. Um, that's that, that okay. They're going to be part of the battle by October, and and, and as we go forward, um, what we're going to find the pattern is now is that the rest of AmeriCal comes ashore because the shipping and and security situation is such that we can do this. Now the army increasingly is going to take responsibility for much of the battle. So by the time of that late October last Japanese land push to try and take the perimeter, um, you know, the, really the army is about half that perimeter. Um, and they do, they administer much of the damage. That, that Japanese attack, uh, so nightmarish on so many levels. You've got guys who have been moving for days across these jungle tracks, each yeah. one of them carrying a couple of mortar shells, some right. of them uh, low millimeter artillery shells. You know, they're exhausted and not well fed by the time they're going forward on October 25th and 26th, I think it is. Yeah. The coordination is horrendous. There's no co- no communication. And so that's no. why you have this kind of piecemeal attack. It, it's made famous, of course, by um, John General Basilone. Sergeant John Bassalone. Yeah. You know, who, yeah, who who is a big part of that that battle. And all this is very well portrayed in the miniseries of the Pacific, including Lecky, mm. uh, the Alligator yeah. Creek fight. I think yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. well portrayed. And and even to the point, like especially in the daylight scenes where you see the Japanese bodies, that lines up with a lot of the photographic evidence that you see at the mm. time. The way they yep. recreated it, I think, is incredible. Well, yeah. I can I can absolutely confirm it. I mean, the the, the copra's gone, but there's other trees in there now, and it, and it it's absolutely one of the same place. The amazing thing about Bloody Ridge um, is that 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 uh, Basilone's positions are still there, so there's still foxholes, and um, they're obviously filled in a bit, but not completely. And there's still evidence of their their wire perimeter. You can still find it in the undergrowth and stuff like that. It's 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 amazing. It's a very very strong defensive position that ridge. Oh, absolutely, because you, know, you can you, you know it's quite steep. And from where where those those Japanese troops come and attack, south southeastern side of it is you can absolutely see why that would be problematic and why that would yeah. be difficult. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing on the Basilone bit is is when you're watching the TV series, you, you imagine it was just there at the edge of the jungle, then it was a, like a sort of grass field, then there was another bit of jungle and they were coming across the grass field. It's not like that at all. So it's 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 the end, edge of a spur and it, and it dips down and, and Basilone's bit have got... And it's not wide, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe, you know, the, the spur is maybe kind of 40 yards wide, something like that, I would guess. And it... And it it drops down into a little saddle and then it rises up the other side. So what the Japanese are doing is they're coming down the slope on the far side into the saddle and then having to come back up again. And the Marines are on the top of the end of this sort of lozenge-shaped saddle, uh, a lozenge-shaped ridge, and they're coming up through the jungle. So there's no there's no clearing as such. I mean, obviously, the Marines have cleared it a bit because they want their field of fire, mm-hmm. but, but it's not like grass or anything. This is just chopped down trees and undergrowth and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's amazing. We found all these. We found all these lids off the tins of. So you would have your boxes of, of grenades, but they also came in these little cardboard cylinders, mm-hmm. like a baked bean tin. But 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 it's cardboard rather than tin. But it has like a tin a pring- top, like a Pringles tin. Like a Pringles tin, yeah. We've talked about this, haven't we? Cube, so it's yeah, like yeah, a Pringles yeah. tin, and you and you you rip the top off, and there's your grenade in it, and and all those lids from these these Pringles tins, like Pringle tins, were all just sat there in the in the amongst the dead leaves and stuff on the floor of this foxhole. It was absolutely unbelievable and you just realized the last time anyone picked that up was when they were literally ripping it off and chucking it at the enemy oh, wow, i mean it's incredible amazing. so john at what at what point are the japanese reinforcing failure and the americans are reinforcing success when does the uh, when does the 
sort of pendulum or, uh, you know, or the seesaw tip in either side's favor? I think that, in my opinion, I think that the Japanese are reinforcing failure by October, right. uh, by mid to late October, at least from a land perspective. But there's also the there's the Cape Esperance, isn't there? There Which is, is so, uh, you know, early early October, and that's a that's a that's a tough battle for the U.S. Navy. <laughs> I mean, that, that's yeah. what I'm from from a from a you know I'm answering that question in a way from a land perspective. Yeah, right. I, I don't think the Henderson Field perimeter is going to be um, taken by the land assets that the Japanese have available. Now, if you can create a situation in which you control the waters all around Guadalcanal, in which you control the air, similar to like the Philippines, what they'd done in the Philippines in 1942, okay, that's different. But are they really going to be able to do that with the kind of naval assets that uh, Admiral Gormley and then later Admiral Halsey is going to have on hand um, by mid to late October and into November? I think that's very chancy. Um, I, I really think, and this is just only my opinion, they really would have been better served to, to invest their resources in in Papua New Guinea. Uh, with with I'm just not bothered with Karakau. They, I mean, they are they are basically in defensive mode along the northern coast of New Guinea at that point because they're pouring everything into Guadalcanal. Uh, so these guys... Which ultimately they're going to lose. Which they, they're going to lose both in the offing, you know, because these guys at Buna constantly waiting for their reinforcements. They're like, we think we can handle the 32nd Division if we just get more guys and more stuff, and we really want to push on to Port Moresby, that whole nightmare. Um, but it never comes, and it doesn't come because it's all being sent into Guadalcanal for no good reason. Uh, yeah. in that sense. So they're, they're robbing Peter to pay Paul, essentially. So they're, 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 by, and by spread betting, they're going to they're lose on both. Is That's the, exactly. Is, yeah. is, is exactly what, is what's happening. And, and John, is it worth, worth just sort of pausing a moment just to talk about some of the key characters, like sort of Vandegrift? Yeah, I mean, Vandegrift uh, has... So he's in charge of the Marines. For, yeah, first-rate division commander, the first Marine division. Eventually, he's going to be a kind of de facto corps commander as you have other units from the 2nd Marine Division that are going to be fed into the battle, and then, of course, elements of the Americal. Um, So for Vandegrift, I mean, you definitely see certainly an element of courage and understanding of defensive warfare, of combined arms warfare, working with the Navy quite productively. This is going to propel him to be Commandant of the Marine Corps. I think he was an excellent choice. Um, Of course, this is where... So you rate him. You think he's good. I think he's very good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and almost, I, I almost think it's a shame that he's, he's good enough that he's promoted to where he doesn't have as much of an effect on the operational side. And I think there were some Marine generals who didn't belong in their position. And most notably his XO, William Rupertus, who does okay is the second guy at the uh, Guadalcanal, but is going to be an absolute unmitigated disaster as the commander of the first Marine division uh, at Peleliu. In my opinion, I know there's some pushback to that, and I respect that. But I'm just telling you, um, this is a guy who is does not have the right mindset for intra-service warfare and, I think, combined arms offensive warfare. We can talk about Peleliu in a different show, and, my God, it's just horrible. Um, Chesty Puller is another guy who's going to come to prominence, of course, um, in, in, in the Battle of Guadalcanal for his courage. There's never any shortage of that. Whether he really has the first understanding of combined arms modern warfare, I think, is another question we could ask ourselves. But I think his performance on Guadalcanal is borderline amazing. Um, Kawaguchi is, is interesting, too, because he adds up what's called the Kawaguchi Brigade, which is basically a bunch of units mishmashed together. 
brigade size outfit. Yeah, right. And, and uh, trying to overwhelm, you know, t- take Bloody Ridge to overwhelm, uh, you know, Henderson Field in mid September 1942. Um, Kawaguchi knows that this isn't really a good idea. And this is what's really quite poignant about it. Um, one of his commanders tells him, we can't go at these defenses. It's going to be thrown, like throwing eggs against a concrete wall. Um, and Kawaguchi is sort of like, I understand that, but we just have to do this. Um, you know, so we think of the Japanese as these mindless fools. or They're not. They're, they're really thinking about this too, and they know what they're heading into. And yet there's this sort of, Command fatalism. and institutional momentum and fatalism and in a sense that maybe they can overwhelm the, the spiritually inferior Americans, at least at first. I think once you've been there long enough, no. They lose 800 on Alligator Creek. They then lose another 800, 900 on Bloody Ridge first attempt, don't they? Oh, at first attempt, and then it's not over with that. Yeah, exactly. They try but multiple But momentum's times. really important, though, isn't it? You've got to keep pushing. You've got to keep at the other guy. You know, if you're not attacking the Americans, the Americans may come out of their perimeter and, and you know, in, destroy you beyond, you know, in your own position. So you, you can understand the logic of attacking to a, attacking to, to keep the battle moving, can't you? I mean, it's not, oh, yeah. it's not, without, its, it's not without its logic. It's the outcome that... that um, undermines the logic doesn't it rather than the, the rather than the premise if you if you see what i mean and at what point do the americans think right okay we've got the we've got them locked here now so we can destroy them on guadalcanal at our leisure and that's 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 the purpose of this battle now as much as holding an airfield it you know because be. we talk jim and i have talked about this a lot you know in the european theater where you know where where the American mindset is well. Let's bring them to battle so that we can destroy them. The way the way to way to do this is offer a battle, suck them in, and and wreck them on on what we've got. And is that what this is that what Guadalcanal then becomes? It becomes that by December, I would say. Right. Uh, yeah, because you're going to hold the perimeter. There's no question about that. The Japanese had been sort of trying to decide among themselves. What do we do in the wake of their the, the failure of their October attack? Some are abdicating, reinforcing, trying again, trying it by naval side of it, or, or you know whatever. But the Americans yeah. understand, I think, by the end of November, two things: that the First Marine Division is fought out um, in in part because of disease, yeah. never for any lack of courage, of course. But they've just yeah. been in this terrible battle for months. So they're going to remove them. And then America, of course, is going to take over the, the bulk of the battle and second Marine division and 25th infantry division, tropic yep. lightning, which really yep. has the key role from now on. And then you're going to have an army commander uh, take over for Vandegrift, Sandy patch. Who's really remarkable by the way. Yep. Um, I don't, I don't think there's any other person who could lay claim to having division core and eventually army command um, and, and eventually in both theaters have major command in both theater. Cause he'll command the seventh army, of course, in, in, uh, in Europe. There's so Lightning Sandy, Joe, I suppose. Isn't Lightning Joe come out? He, Lightning um, Joe is the commander of the 25th division. And then he becomes seventh Corps commander in theater, but he's never an army commander, but yeah, no. he has major ground command in both theaters. And you know, what's interesting about Lightning Joe in looking at his correspondence around this time, 
as he's leading 25th Division, he becomes convinced that the Pacific War is not the place for a ground commander uh, to make his reputation and make his career. And he thinks it's going to be completely an airman's war. And he's lobbying yeah. to get into Europe because he thinks that where he that's where he can make his way. And he has, of course, <laughs> tremendous influence in order to, to make that happen for himself. I don't think he was 100% right on the Pacific War, but I understand where he was coming from. And I think he was a major difference maker on Guadalcanal. So he is, he's Patch's subordinate technically, but he's, though they're more like peers on some level. So yeah, really mm. from this point forward in December on, it's a matter of expanding beyond the perimeter. The first goal is to try and make sure that Henderson Field is no longer under Japanese artillery fire. So that means taking um, some of that high ground near it, like uh, Mount yep. Austin and yep. the Galloping Horse and and uh, all of that kind of stuff. Well, but- the amazing thing about Galloping Horse, and you should just say that. So, so on the uh, Galloping Horse is called Galloping Horse because there's these patches on the hills where there's this kind of I think it's called Kunai grass, isn't it? Something like that. Mm-hmm. It, it's 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 a tall grass, and if you, you, it's very easy to cut yourself on it. It's very sharp uh, grass, but it is grass. But it's but there's no eucalyptus trees, there's no jungle. It, it's just grass, and from the air, the reconnaissance photos is this big patch on these hills, and it looks like a, a galloping horse. So it gets known as, as as galloping horse. The other name for it, as you pointed out, is is, is Mount Austin. The weird thing is, is if you go onto Google Earth now, it's still the same. It is. Pretty much, <laughs> I know. You can I've still spot too. galloping horse. It's, it's incredible. incredible. It really is, and a lot of those areas too are. But, you know, they're still the same. I mean, it's it's really crazy. Uh, so and, those and, are- and the Thin Red Line, the movie the, and the book, yeah. the, and uh, that is depicting galloping horses, um, is my understanding of it. And it actually, is. they filmed a large part of that on Guadalcanal, a bit further exactly. along the coast, actually. But it, but the hills they used were where you see them going up the hill and Ben Chaplin going up on that patrol mm. to try and get the to, to, to check out where the bunker is and all the rest of it. That was filmed on Guadalcanal. Amazing. And that, that portrays um, small unit action led by Charles Davis, who was a battalion XO um, and has a key role in the whole galloping horse battle and ends up getting the medal of honor. And this becomes very famous at the time. Right. And it's sort of loosely portrayed in the movie. Um, And you also, so the John Cusack character who is actually a Lieutenant, I think, but um, he's supposed to be kind of a stand in for, for Davis, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about this too, I mean, of course, all of the, the movie and all that is based on the book by James Jones, which was a novel, but is really in some ways more like, an, uh, an autobiography yeah um, i highly recommend that to everybody it's oh it's brilliant it's because amazing. you've got all the but what's really good is all the banter isn't that it is so and it's the, so the, real the, the, yeah <laughs> it is it's so real and it's not very pleasant to come to terms with in a way because yeah. he's he's exploring a lot of different themes race um masculinity um sexuality all of that is sort of in play in, in this book, and it comes through as very real, the way these guys are dealing with one another. And hmm. the other thing that I think is fascinating and, and portrayed in the movie, Nick Nolte's character, Lieutenant Colonel Tall. Okay, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, so James Jones had, I think, a battalion commander like that who seemed pretty hardcore and kind of career-minded and all that. But it, it's easy to just say, say, oh, that guy's that guy's crap. He, he doesn't care about anybody yeah. but himself. And uh, isn't it awful? But no, in the book, there's all this ambiguity about, well, you know what? He knows what he's doing, but yes, he's ruthless. Yeah. What do we think about a guy like that? You know? And yeah, so, yeah. so you get the sense that Jones himself, even though he kind of hates officers on some levels, 
is is ambivalent too and i i mm. think that that is so intriguing and that's kind of, that comes across in the movie a little bit too i think well i thought they were i, I i'm a big fan of both actually i thought the i thought the the book is just is is stunning i mean it's a, it's a big book it's 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 quite dense yeah, it's there's an awful lot of of dialogue a huge amount of dialogue and and he goes into i mean this is where it kind of sort of it it, it, it stretches away from from memoir into absolutely pure novel is because he gets inside the head of all the different characters which they sort of convey in the movie the movie though is is very different from it's very different it's it's one of the same it's a bit like um english patient and atonement that you know the films are the films the, the novels are the novels they're not trying to be the same thing but they're obviously the same they are the same source if you sort of mean I, I'm a big fan of that movie. I thought I thought the depictions of combat and stuff were just stupendous, and the fact that really it is well filmed on Guadalcanal gives it a kind of realism, which I think is right up there with the very best war Definitely. movies. If I'm honest, I'll need to. I'll have. I'll have to watch it again. It's. it's I think it's I've terrific, it. and I don't. I don't mind all the kind of sort of pontificating and the slow start yeah. and the arty yeah. stuff. <laughs> it's so beautifully shot, um, uh, and, and everyone in it is just superb. There's, oh, there's this not a single weak cast of all this. This, I mean, this talent. So much talent that you're just sort of using George Clooney as an afterthought at the end. You know, yeah. Like, uh, just this throwaway <laughs> character at the end. I mean, it's well, yeah, George Clooney's only in it for about an inch, yeah. for about a minute, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. exactly, and and he and and it wasn't his best performance, I don't think, and you know, it's. I just think that the movie works on so many levels. All the leads are terrific, aren't they? Yeah, That's so absolutely. Good. It's just well well done on on a lot of levels. Um, though it took so much heat, especially from the like the hardcore war movie people for all yeah. the sort of rumination, the intellectualism, the, the yeah, animal kind of way shots and all that. Uh, I don't know. In retrospect, I I kind of. You know, I, I think it all I works it. In, that, in that respect too. Maybe it's just because I'm getting older, and and uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, it's right, for me. It's it's right up there as one of my very very favorite movies. Me too. But back to the Battle of Guadalcanal. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Airways. Right. Well, I think, we do, I think we should do. I think we should do a second part on this. Yeah. We yeah. should yeah, do a should. second part on this. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really good idea because because this what, is too big to do in one well, episode. Yeah, well, because yeah. after yeah. all, this this does end with the Japanese evacuating, and it's something worth talking about. Um, and in, it's in, very yeah. unusual because Japanese it, it, well, that, not, tend not to. Exactly. The, exactly point. my point. Yeah, and that that you know, I think we we probably expect them to fight to the to the last man, woman, and child. And they aren't doing that in this instance. And I think that's quite, that's pretty interesting. It is. And also, we're not, we haven't talked about the Tokyo Express. We haven't talked no. about yeah. too much about the reinforcements and how they get around it. Right. We haven't talked about the disasters of reinforcements later on. Um, we haven't mm-hmm. talked about the lack of supplies to the Japanese and the fact that they're all starving by the end and it's Starvation just an horror, horror show. Uh, and we haven't too much talked about the about the naval side of things and interestingly i i what i'd be quite interested to do at some point is discuss as well maybe on the next episode is discuss the naval command the u.s naval command and how it works because you have all these task force and then you have these theater commanders and you've got the overall commander then you've got king admiral king at the top you've got nimitz you know how does it all fit together how does it all work Who, who's doing what who's who's calling the strings where's the kind of links between air power and 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 surface power blah 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 yeah Yeah. well that's for next time then Um, (laughs) (laughs) and in between time go and watch um, go and watch thin red line yeah more movie reviews for you um well thanks very much for listening everyone uh john it's always a pleasure to to talk to you uh jim 
likewise we'll see you all very soon bye bye cheerio see ya Achtung, Achtung, welcome to this very special uh, mini edition of We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland in association with Company of Heroes 3. Uh, Jim, I don't know if you're interested in the uh, Allied campaign in Italy at all. I don't know if it's a thing that's crossed your desk. <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> Maybe. Yes, uh, I mean, I've got to say, Company of Heroes 3 is is kind of, it, it could have been made specifically for me, it has to be said. You know, the Deutsche Africa Corps in North Africa, um, land, landings and conquests of Sicily, and then before you know it, whoa, there's Italy, and, and we're kind of careering off from um, Salerno to Foggia, um, and, and before you kind of double back to Monte Cassino. So what's not to like, frankly? We've been joined by Steve Melley all the way from Vancouver, who's executive producer at Relic Entertainment and who created the game. Steve, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you both. Uh, it's great to meet you both. Um, so tell us, you know, uh, how do you pick the campaigns? If Because if, Company of Heroes is it's a huge game, but, uh, but massively popular. Um, you can play it on by yourself or you can play it uh, um, in multiplayer role online and all that sort of stuff. How do you arrive at a campaign to fight? Um, we asked that question of our community right at the outset. Uh, so Company of Heroes 1 was focused on the Normandy invasions. Uh, Company of Heroes 2, we focused on the, the, the Eastern Front. They, they love the variety. They want to see uh, different uh, factions. They want to see the different uh, landscapes and the different ways of playing and give it, giving you variety within that space. And the Mediterranean theater provides that. You've got coastal regions. You've got deserts. You've got mountainous terrain. You know, so we, this this was uh, urban areas. So you know, this was a, an exciting space for us to to different views, different gameplay, different factions. Everything was kind of packed in in the Mediterranean theater. And in terms of factions, if you look at we we call them Duke forces on on the podcast, Dominions okay. UK Empire. You've got yep. you've got Gurkhas in this game. You've got mm-hmm. as well as Tommies and. Aussies, you've got you've got people from all over the world, and you've also got all the right kit as well, <laughs> which, which, I, which I thought was great. You know, it's fantastic to see Stuart's um, Stuart tanks, and that's what I like because you know I'm, I am a bit of a geek about this stuff, and I want my details to be right. Yeah, so you touched on the um, the, the 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 kit and the 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 authenticity of, of what we're doing yeah, here. Absolutely, um, I wanted to talk. We we had a ton of fun with do it with building that out for our game and, and doing the research and doing the homework within uh, you know the history books and uh, local historians with it, that in our neighborhood here, and then uh, uh, speaking to cultural consultants to ensure that the language we're using is accurate, even and 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 the the outfits and the uniforms, everything. So we had a ton of fun doing the homework and the research for that we wanted everything to feel authentic that we don't take you out of that immersion and that feeling of the time but occasionally we've made decisions that are where someone who does know the exact fact would know that that specific upgrade on that Stuart tank wasn't there in that particular <laughs> battle it, it shows up next you know next year or next month uh, and so we have there are fine lines there because we you know 
we're, we have an upgrade tree, and so you, you're able to upgrade your vehicles or your weapons or your units in your, in your, in, in, within a battle. But so we had this fine line between gameplay authenticity that when you're in there, you feel immersed and you're loving it. Uh, and, you, you, you know, there's nothing super taking you out of the, the experience. But then at the same time, there was that accuracy that where occasionally we broke a few uh, rules there um, or, or historical facts just in order to get that gameplay experience through. Well, Steve, I can absolutely tell you that, that I think, I think most of our listeners will really, really enjoy this. It's, it's, it's just got the right level of geekiness to it and detail and facts and options. And, and as, as Al says, the fact that you've got kind of, you know, Gurkhas and what have you as well. I think it's absolutely terrific. The other thing is, even uh, of your listeners, your audience, if they are new to Company of Heroes, the franchise, uh, we've added a feature that I think uh, all our players, even people who have played it before, will enjoy, is um, the tactical pause. And what tactical pause is... So, for those who don't know, our game is a real-time strategy, and, and you're on the field making decisions, capturing resources in order to fuel your, uh, you know, the, your war machine and get the, building up your, uh, your troops and, and sending them out on the field. It, there's a lot going on. You're, you're looking from uh, above, looking down on the map, making decisions, uh, grabbing you know, your vehicles and your, your units, and you're moving them into uh, to, to places at the same time while the enemy is coming after you and those resources. So with tactical pause, it, it allows you to press the space bar, pause the action, and you can then make all the commands and orders, and it'll show you a nice line of where your units are going to go, where your vehicle is going to go next, and if you want to throw a grenade at the end of that uh, movement you can and you toss a grenade press spacebar again and the action takes off and it, it, sometimes you know sometimes there's a lot going on so this helps you take stock of the situation uh, grab a sandwich if you need to uh, or, <laughs> and, and, and then send it back into action do you see days gobbled up playing this uh, or are you, are you a man of remarkable self-control <laughs> <laughs> we've got a it's a significant campaign the single player experience is over 40 hours of, of wow. gameplay for players to get into. So wow. if you're if, if wow. you know you can spend your time in there and uh, and really just get immersed and and uh, there's I, well, I'm, again I I'm a proponent of video games in general and so I think there's great value in your dollar to have all that time and then that's just the single player experience. If you want to continue to play against the the AI, we have uh, this you know we've built out this in, intelligent uh, you know system in the background for to play against the computer and you can try out different strategies and uh we call that we call that comp stomp because the idea is that you're you know you're stomping on the computer over and over again (laughs) and you can join up with your mates as well and you play two you know you can play one v one and one against the computer you can play two v two three v three or if you had four of you you come together and just have a laugh and and beat up on the computer and uh it's a ton of fun as well uh well steve i I, we think it's great we think it's absolutely terrific and it's out now isn't it you can play it Play it today on your PC. Yes, you can. People interested, anyone uh, can go check it out at companyofheroes.com. It's available on PC and Steam. If you head there, you can find it. Fantastic. Terrific. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Steve, and many congratulations.